It's good to be with you all this morning. If you have a Bible, please open it up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We're going to be continuing our series in the gospel according to John this morning, and we're going to be finishing John chapter 1. Some of you might be breathing a sigh of relief after uh, several weeks in John chapter 1, but I'm excited to this week actually be getting into the body of John. The last few weeks we've been studying the prologue or the introduction to uh, this gospel, and I'm excited today to get into the meat of the story uh, in John chapter 1, verses 31 through 51, uh, sorry, 35 through 51, and that's where we will be this morning. We're going to continue to worship as we read and study God's word together. So John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, I'm going to read it, and then we are going to pray over this text, and then we're going to dive into it together. So John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus saw Nathanael. Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the stunning picture of your Son that it reveals. I pray that as we study it together this morning, uh, we would be amazed at who your Son is, and that we would be drawn to worship him with everything that we are. I pray that you would make me an effective communicator and that you would make all of us effective listeners so that we would be hearers and doers of your word. And it's for your name we pray. Amen. So I wonder, have you been really excited for anything recently? Our society gives us no shortage of things to be excited about, no shortage of things uh, to grow anticipation over. There's a lot of small things that we can get excited about, like new movies or music or podcasts or books or whatever it is that you love to consume. There's a lot to get excited about. I think about last year uh, when we had to wait a full 12 months in between Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. And, and like during those 12 months, that was like all I could think about most days. And I was so excited that there were some days that I actually forgot that Thanos was made up and didn't actually wipe out half the universe, uh, because I was just so excited. I don't even like comic books or superheroes, but I just totally jumped on the bandwagon and got all in. The anticipation was just so real, sometimes I even forgot what was reality. But there's also a lot of big things that we can get excited about, a lot of big things that are growing anticipations in our hearts. 
For instance, just in the last few months, faced with a global pandemic and coming face to face with the horrible reality of racial injustice, I've just found myself longing for the world to become a better place, longing for injustice to end and justice to reign, longing for there to be less suffering and more goodness and peace in the world. That's a, a feeling, an anticipation, an excitement, a longing that we're all feeling. And the fact of the matter is we're not the first people to long for something like this. In fact, the Bible tells one story of God's people longing for a king to come and bring about that kind of world. The Bible tells one story of God's people longing for a king or a savior to come who will end injustice and reign over the earth with justice. The Bible tells one story of God's people longing for a savior to come who will end all evil and suffering and death and reign over the earth with goodness and peace and mercy. And today, what we're going to see as we study John's gospel is we're going to see that God has made good on those expectations. And that king has come and his name is Jesus Christ. And that's the good news that we're going to study this morning. Our passage today is made up of two stories, two true narratives. These events actually happened in history long ago, and we can trust that. And both of these stories climax with a confession about who this Jesus is. And both of these confessions use really important words to describe who this Jesus is. So the first one comes in, ch in uh, chapter 1, verse 41, when, when uh, Andrew confesses, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now, Messiah is a Hebrew word, and Christ is the Greek translation of it. So when we say Jesus Christ, and when we say Jesus Messiah, we're actually saying the same thing. We're, it's just the same word in two different languages. And a literal English translation of it would be Jesus, the anointed one, the anointed one. So that's the first confession about Jesus, that he is the Messiah or the Christ. And then the second confession comes in verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. So we see this second confession. We see two confessions. First, that Jesus is the Christ. And second, that Jesus is the Son of God. Why do I point all that out to you? Well, because this isn't the only place in John's gospel that we see these two titles used together to describe Christ. In fact, one of the most important passages in John is John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. That, that uh, passage is commonly called the purpose statement because it's in that passage that John says, hey, I just wrote this really long book and I want to explain to you why I wrote this really long book. So we can read about that in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's the same two titles that we see in John chapter 1. And so if you were to ask John, why should I read your gospel? Why should I study this book that you've written, like we've been doing over the last several weeks, and like we will do for the next several months? Why should we study John's gospel? Well, John tells us it's, it's so that you would know and believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so Christ and Son of God are two very important titles in the gospel according to John. If we're going to understand John's gospel, we have to understand what these two titles mean. And so what do they mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? And that's what we're going to find out today. And to really dig into what these titles mean, we're going to take a step back and we're going to walk through the story of the Old Testament, where these two titles, Christ and Son of God, are used repeatedly. And they're most frequently used together in connection with King David who's one of the most pivotal figures in the Old Testament. So I want to divide the rest of our time into three parts. Part one, the Messiah anticipated. We're going to walk through the Old Testament, specifically the story about God's promises 
to David. And we're going to see that, that God's people have been longing for this Christ, have been longing for this Messiah, have been longing for the Son of God to rule over the earth with justice, to end all evil and suffering, to end the reign of Satan, sin, and death, the Messiah anticipated. And then with that foundation, seeing how the Bible itself defines these names, Christ and the Son of God, then we're going to come back and we're going to look at John chapter 1 with fresh eyes. We're going to see the Messiah arrived. And then uh, once we walk through the passage again, we're going to think about some implications for our own life. The Messiah announced, the Messiah anticipated, the Messiah arrived, and the Messiah announced. So we're going to start with the Messiah anticipated. Uh, like I said, these two titles, Christ and Son of God, are most frequently used in the Old Testament in connection with King David. And there's a lot of ways that we could tell the story of King David. But I want to start the story about 500 years before David was even born in the book of Genesis. Now, we know that we've been studying, we, we spent the last several months studying the book of Genesis together. We found that it is a book full of hope, full of promises from God. And one of the most important of those promises comes towards the end of the book in Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis chapter 49, Abraham's grandson Jacob is on his deathbed and he calls his sons around them and God speaks through Jacob a word of prophecy. He explains what the future is going to look like for his sons. And the most important of those promises, the most important of those prophecies is given to Jacob's son Judah. So read with me Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from, from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now this is royal language. This is talking about a king that will come from the line of Judah who will run day reign over God's people. And the, the verse ends with a really important word. It says, to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, peoples is a really important word in the Bible. And sometimes we might overlook it or we might think, oh, that's funny. There's a typo. They accidentally added an S onto the end of the word people. But no, there's more going on there than a typographical error. It's actually peoples is an important word that refers to distinct ethnic, linguistic, cultural people groups. And so when the Bible talks about peoples, and we're going to see that word come up a lot as we study uh, this promise to King David, what it's meaning is that this king is coming from the line of Judah, and he will not just rule over Israel, but he will rule over the world. There's a king coming, God promises, who will rule and reign not just over Israel, but over the world. And now that could be really good news, or it could be really bad news. Because if one king is going to have authority over everything, if he's a good king, we want that. But if he's a bad king, then we want to, we want to push back away from that. And so what kind of king is this going to be? Well, we see, like I said, about 500 years later, God shows that he is keeping this promise when he anoints David to be the king of Israel. And, and there's a lot of drama that goes on in between David being anointed king of Israel and actually ascending to the throne in Jerusalem. And you can read about that in 1 Samuel. I hope that you will. Uh, but once David finally ascends to the throne, shortly after, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David. And God promises David that his descendants would rule on the throne of Israel, not just for a short time, but for all time. And so we see that God is keeping his promise to Judah by raising up David, Judah's great, 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 great grandson, to be the king. And then God actually expands on this amazing, astounding promise. And he says, this coming king isn't just going to rule over Israel, but he's going to rule over the entire earth. And he says, this king isn't just going to rule for a lifetime. This king is going to rule for all time. And again, when we see David, we say, well, he's a pretty good king. If the king that's coming and going to rule forever over all nations is going to be like him, that's something that I can get behind. And, and as the Old Testament continues, we just get more detail tacked on to this astounding promise. Uh, consider, for instance, Isaiah chapter 
11, where we start to see what this king's reign will look like. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, Jesse was David's father, and so this this passage is talking about this same promise that a son of David will come and he will rule not just over Israel, but over all the nations, not just for a lifetime, but for all time. Skip down to verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And so we see here a picture of a good king who fears the Lord, who loves the Lord, who cherishes the Lord, who delights in the Lord. And as a result of his close relationship with the Lord, he rules with justice. And he he promises to smack down the evil and to raise up the lowly with justice. Let's read Isaiah 11 verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a zoo, but they don't typically keep those kinds of animals together. Uh, When I was a kid, I had a video game where you could build your own zoo, and I don't know what this says about me, but I liked to put the lions and the penguins together and just watch the carnage happen. It was great, Um, but that's... There's something even better promised here, a wolf and a lamb dwelling together. And there's so much peace in this society that we'll even let a little baby play with them. It's just a wolf. What are they going to do? Well, that's not what our world looks like now. But Isaiah 11 is promising that when the son of David rules over the earth, there will be so much peace and so much joy and so much mercy that that won't even be a problem. It also talks about a child sticking their hand in a snake's hole. Now, when my daughter sticks her hand in any kind of hole, I'm like, okay, well, let's stop doing that. Uh, but but in, this new, in this new world where the king of David rules, there will be no fears like that. We will not have to fear any kind of suffering because suffering is a distant memory under this good king's rule. Let's just read one more verse from Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11:10. In that day, the root of Jesse, again, that's the son of David, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for who? For the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And so again, this is a promise that the son of David is coming, and he will rule not just over Israel, but over the entire earth. Now that sounds like a pretty astounding kingdom that we read about in Isaiah chapter 11. That sounds like a kingdom that I would like to be a part of, and I bet it sounds like a kingdom that you would like to be a part of. So like, is he going to be on the ballot in November, or do we have to write him in? Or, or like, you know, like, what's, what's the deal there? No, 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 no. This is much bigger than that. This is the good news that the son of David is coming, and he will not just reign over America for a four-year term subject to another election. He has, by God's design, been declared to rule over all nations forever in this kind of way, and it will be glorious. Let's just read one more passage from the Old Testament about this growing expectation for the son of David to come in Psalm chapter 2. And before we read that, I just want you to know that God's people would have received these messages and these prophecies over a long period of time. And as this promise of God gets more clarity and more definition, God's people would have just been growing and expanding in their anticipation for the son of David. They're saying, is the son of David coming? Is he here yet? When are we going to have this kind of peace? When are we going to see suffering as just a distant memory fading in our rear view mirror? When is it going to be like this? And I hope that as we study these passages together, you're finding yourself growing that kind of anticipation. You're finding yourself longing for the day that the son of David will reign. So let's look again at Psalm chapter 2 and read more about the son of David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Remember, David was anointed to be the king of Israel. And remember, anointed means Christ or Messiah. Messiah would actually be a literal translation of the word used here. 
against his Messiah, against the son of David. So these are the kings of the earth, and they're planning a rebellion against the son of David and against God. Let's read their plans in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So they're planning a rebellion, and what, how does God respond? Does he tremble and say, like, oh, man, I didn't think that anybody would not like my plan. Like, oh, man, what am I going to do? Is God wringing his hands in the universe? No. Read verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. God is saying that your rebellion is laughable. It is fixed. It is sure that the son of David will rule and reign. Keep reading verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. So God's now speaking to the son of David. He says, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then he ends with a warning to the kings of the earth and any who would not submit to the son of David. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So all who rebel against the son of David are rebelling against God himself. And at the same time, all who submit to the good reign of this son of David are submitting to God himself. It ends with this beautiful promise, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And the reason that Psalm 2 is so important for understanding this great hope that a son of David would come is because of the names that this psalm gives to this promised son of David. In verse 2, he's called the anointed one or the Christ or Messiah. And then in verse 7 and verse 12, he's called the son of God. Nowhere have we seen those names before today. We saw them in John chapter 1 and we saw them in John chapter 20. So when, when John says that he's writing his gospel so that you would know that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Son of God, what he has in mind is Genesis 49 and Isaiah 11 and Psalm 2 and dozens of other promises in Scripture that the Son of David would come and rule over all the earth for all time, that he would end all suffering, sin, and death, that he would rule with peace and justice and righteousness and mercy, and that all who take refuge in him would be saved. That's what John has in mind. John is saying that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited son of David. And as we turn to John's gospel, we see that the Messiah that God's people have been anticipated is now arrived in the person of Jesus Christ. The Messiah arrived. With that foundation, I want to walk quickly through our passage in John chapter 1. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, Lamb of God is another astounding title uh, that's given to Jesus. It also has Old Testament roots. We don't have time to get into it today, uh, but this isn't the first time that it's come up in John's Gospel. So if you want to learn more about what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God, go and listen to Thomas's sermon uh, from two weeks ago, and you can, you can get more info on that. Uh, but we keep reading, The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And he said to them, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now this is a pretty plain event. We see all of these amazing, astounding promises in the Old Testament that the son of David would come and rule over the whole earth. And now we get to the son of David and he's just kind of like walking around and talking to guys. Like that's not really what we would expect, is it? But the reason this is a plain event is because these disciples are not seeking a miracle or a spectacle. They're not seeking military might or political power. They're seeking Christ. Because Christ is the reward, and Christ is the treasure. If Christ really is the son of David, then he's worth following, even when it's not exciting. 
And they call him teacher because they want to learn from him. They call him teacher because they say, you are wise, you are the chosen one of God, and I've got a lot of questions. I have a lot that I need to learn from you. And then they even go and stay with Jesus, which shows in part that they're, they're eager to stay with him for the long haul. They know that this is God's plan, not just for a season, but for all time. And so they're going to do whatever it takes to get as close as possible to Jesus. And we keep reading verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. There's that first title, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Now, Andrew and Simon were both Jewish men. They were familiar with the promises of the Old Testament. They have been looking forward to their whole life for the son of David to come. Maybe as little children, as they were rocked in their mother's arms, uh, their parents would have told them stories that the son of David is going to come and you're going to play with a snake and a wolf and it's going to be awesome. They were familiar with these hopes for a son of David. And now Andrew is coming to his brother and he's boldly saying, he is here. Now, I have an older brother, and if I went to him and I said, like, hey, man, there's a guy here, and he's going to rule over the entire earth, and it's going to be great, uh, then he probably would uh, seek to have me institutionalized. But that's not how Peter responds. Verse 42, uh, he willingly goes, Peter willingly goes with Andrew to meet this supposed son of David. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And so Jesus gives Simon a new name, calls him Peter, which means rock. And that's just to signify that Peter was going to have a unique role in the early church, a unique foundational role in the early church. And so we have this first story. It's fairly uneventful. It's just three guys following Jesus because they believe that he is the son of God, the promised son of David, the Christ, the Messiah. So let's read this second story, and we'll see these same themes come out again. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And just whenever we see historical details like that in John's gospel, one of the many things that they do, besides just place the story in space and time, is they remind us that this isn't just a story or a fairy tale about a king that's going to come and save us all. No, this is real history. This really happened. There really was a Philip that really did meet a man named Jesus. Jesus really did call him to follow him. This is history. And Philip responds to this Jesus the same way that Simon did. He immediately goes and tells the people closest to him about him. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now when we see that phrase Moses and the prophets, we're going to see it come up a few more times in, uh, the, in the gospel according to John, or Moses and the prophets, or the law and the prophets. Uh, that's just a common expression from this day. It's just kind of shorthand for the entire Old Testament, what we know of as the Old Testament. And it shows us here that just picking out a few verses about God's promise to David barely scratches the surface about all that the Old Testament has to say about our Savior. Church, every page of your Bible testifies about who this Jesus is. Every page of your Bible is seeking to ramp up your expectations that he will come and reign over the earth as the son of David. Every page whispers his name. So Nathaniel is a mature Jewish man. He's, he's skilled in the scriptures. The rest of the passage seems to clue us into and so when Philip says, we've found the one, Nathaniel's pretty clued in. He's pretty well educated. And there's one detail about what Philip shares that doesn't really fit with Nathaniel's biblical expectations. And that's that this, this Jesus, the son of Joseph, would have come from the city of Nazareth. You see, Nathaniel would have known that the son of David was expected to come from the city of David, Bethlehem, the same city that David was born in. Now, many of us know that Jesus actually was born in the city of David, but Nathaniel doesn't know that at this point because he's not God, unlike Jesus. Uh, so he asks a question, verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, 
Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, under the fig tree, that's a common expression, again, from this day. It just means that they were, he was praying and studying the scriptures, doing his regular schedule of devotions. And so what Jesus is saying here is much bigger than just like, hey, man, I saw you sitting under the tree over there. It looked comfy. Like, can I sit there with you next time? Uh, no, he's saying that he saw Nathaniel in the privacy of prayer and scripture study. Jesus is saying that there is nothing hidden from his sight. Your deepest, darkest secrets are known to him. And because Nathaniel's skilled in the scripture, he evaluates Nathaniel's character and he says, you are an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. You're skilled in the scriptures. You've been studying the scriptures. You've been anticipating the son of David. And so Jesus is showing off his complete knowledge, his omniscience. And Nathanael is amazed. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And there's our second title about the son of David. Just like Andrew before, Nathanael is confessing this is the guy. This is the long-awaited promised son of David. He is the son of God that we read about in Psalm 2. Now, as we learned about last week, the title son of God is packed with meaning. It doesn't just refer to Jesus as the son of David. It also refers to him as the only begotten son of God, that he is fully God like we learned about last week that he took on a human nature to dwell among us, for us men and for our salvation. He really is the Son of God. But I think that, that Nathaniel has more in mind here, this, this promise about the Son of David coming. Why? Well, first of all, because the passage uses it parallel to Andrew's confession that he is the Christ, and then also because he, he defines what he means there later on in the verse. He says, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So Nathaniel makes clear that he is anticipating the son of David who will come to rule and reign. And Jesus responds, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, whenever we hear Jesus say, truly, truly, I say to you, and that's going to be a common expression in the gospel according to John as we studied over the next few months, anytime you read that word in your Bible or, or, or that phrase in your Bible or hear it come from our lips up here, your, your antenna should perk up and you should say, oh, this is really important. I need to hear this part. And so Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, look at this. This is really important. I don't want you to miss this. And then he tells kind of an enigmatic story. He says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's easy for that story to, mi to, to miss its relevance to us because we're not as skilled in the Old Testament as Nathaniel would have been. Uh, but it does come from the Old Testament. It comes from Genesis chapter 28, which we studied in our uh, sermon series through the book of Genesis. And so we can read it briefly here, Genesis chapter 28, in this passage, Jacob, who we heard about earlier, the grandson of Abraham, the, 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 the heir to the promises to Abraham, who had promised his son Judah, like we read about earlier, chapter 49, that a king would come to rule over all nations forever. It's that same Jacob. Earlier in his life, he's traveling through the desert. He decides to stop for the night, and so he lays down. He uses a rock for a pillow, and uh, and the, the passage describes a unique dream that he has from God. And he dreamed, and behold, Genesis 28, behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, that's the same phrase that Jesus uses here. So we know that this is what Jesus is referring to. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread among, abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, 
I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. There's a lot of details there. You could spend a long time studying Genesis 28, and that, that would be a great use of your time this afternoon or this evening. Uh, but, but the main thrust of it is that God is doing two things. He is revealing his glory, and he's reaffirming his promises to Abraham. You're, you'd remember from our study in Genesis that, that Abraham is the, the great-great-grandfather from which all of the nation of Israel would come. So all of the pivotal figures in the Old Testament arose, after Abraham arose from Abraham, and God promised him that he would have a great nation with many offsprings and much land, and that his offspring would be a blessing to the entire earth. And so God is saying here in Genesis 28, to Abraham's grandson, hey, I have not forgotten my promises. I'm still going to make good on them. I'm still fulfilling them exactly in, in accords with my perfect plan. God is reaffirming his promises to Abraham, and he's revealing his glory. And throughout the gospel according to John, we see Jesus do these same two things. We see him reveal God's glory. We read last week in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Jesus reveals God's glory, and he didn't just reaffirm God's promise to Abraham, he actually accomplished God's promises to Abraham. He, he doesn't just say, Abraham, don't forget, you're going to have a lot of offspring. He actually brings offspring into Abraham's family through faith in him. You can read more about that in Romans chapter 4. And he doesn't just say, Abraham, your offspring will be a blessing to the entire earth, but Jesus is actually the means by which Abraham's family will be a blessing to the entire earth. How? Because he will rule over the entire earth as the promised son of David, who will end all suffering and evil and injustice. Jesus Christ is the king. He is the long-awaited son of David. He is the one that we have been expecting for millennia through the Old Testament. And Jesus Christ came to rule as a king. How? Did he rule as a king? Many people in Jesus' day expected him to ascend to a throne in Jerusalem where he would conquer the Roman Empire and rule over the earth with peace and bring God's people away from the tyranny of the Roman Empire. Well, Jesus did not ascend to a throne in Jerusalem. He ascended to a cross. And Jesus did not end the tyranny of the Roman Empire. He ended the tyranny of Satan's sin and death. And Jesus did not just set us free from, from physical infirmities, but Jesus promised to set us free from that dominion of Satan's sin and death. The gospel according to John, along with all four of the gospels, boldly proclaims that Jesus is the king by nature of his cross. Just flip over to John chapter 19, where we see when Jesus is being condemned to kill, he is mocked. How? He is mocked as the king. John chapter 19, verse 3. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. When Jesus was being condemned to kill, he was rejected. How? As a king. John chapter 19, verse 15. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Jesus was rejected as a king. And when Jesus was killed, he was labeled as a king. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Jesus reigned as a king, not by slashing a sword through the air and destroying his enemies, but by ascending to a cross to die for his enemies. You see, if Jesus Christ is the long-awaited son of David, if he really is the right king of the universe, that's really bad news for us because we have not obeyed him perfectly as the son of David rightfully deserves. We have rebelled against him. We've chosen to live for little things like 
our own pleasures or, or other causes besides his name and besides his kingdom. And Jesus came to preach good news. He died not for his own sins because the son of David who rules and reigns with righteousness in the spirit of the Lord that we read about in Isaiah 11, that king has no crimes. And so when Jesus was killed on the cross, he wasn't being killed for his crimes. He was being killed for our crimes. And then three days later, the best news in all the world, Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he is ruling there at the right hand of the father as the son of David over all nations. And that is very, very good news because it means that if Jesus Christ is alive, then we can be raised up to newness of life in him. If we put our trust in Jesus, then we will be saved. If we repent of our sins, if we admit that we have not lived as citizens of the kingdom, but that we have instead settled to live as citizens of the kingdom of this earth, then we can be saved. You see, Christianity isn't, isn't about being good enough to earn your place into the king's castle. It's about the king coming down from the castle and welcoming rebels home on the one condition that they commit allegiance to the king and his kingdom. And that allegiance, that obedience, which is a part of believing and repenting in Christ, it's something that he supplies. He grants us faith. He grants us obedience. There is nothing that you can contribute apart from God's grace to earn your salvation or earn your place in God's kingdom. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited son of David. He is a king worth following anywhere. Because if Jesus really is the king, then anything short of 100% obedience and submission, wherever he leads, I'll follow is rebellion and blasphemy. And if he really is the king of the world, none of us want to be described as his enemies. But in our sin, that's what we are. But he transfers us. The book of Colossians says that he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of marvelous light. And that, friends, is very good news. Jesus Christ is the long-awaited king who saves sinners. We saw the Messiah anticipated. We saw the Messiah arrived and now we think about our own lives and have a few reflections on the Messiah announced. If Christ really is the king of all nations, he must be proclaimed in our nation. We have got to get serious and committed and disciplined to do the work of evangelism. Because if Christ really is the king, and if the people around us really are walking in rebellion, and if there really is life found by believing that he is the king, then why wouldn't we share that with everyone around us? We saw in John chapter 1 that the first disciples, the very first thing they did was they turned around and told the people closest to them. Why don't we have that kind of zeal? So who are the non-believers that you know in your home or, or in your neighborhood or, or in your workplace or, or in your family that don't believe that Jesus is the Christ? And what are you going to do to share this good news with them? Starting the conversation doesn't need to be in intimidating. You know, tomorrow when you, when you go to work or log on to work, however you're doing that these days, uh, if, if somebody says to you, hey, what did you do this weekend? You could say, well, on Saturday, I kind of like walked around the Capitol and it was kind of cool. Or you could say, well, on Sunday, I went to church and I learned that Jesus is the king of the entire world. Can I tell you more about that? And all of a sudden, you've started a conversation in a totally work-appropriate way. It's easy to start the conversation, and I want to encourage you to do that. But what should you do once you've started the conversation, and then people just kind of respond with indifference? They say, like, okay, well, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, sure. Uh, and then they move on, and they don't become a Christian right on the spot, and revival doesn't break out in your workplace. Well, you can do exactly what Jesus did with Andrew and with the disciple of John. He didn't just say, like, hey, guys, I'm the king. Peace out. No, he said, like, come and stay with me and learn from me and study with me. And that's exactly what we can do. So when someone responds with indifference or rejection when you proclaim the good news about Christ the King, you can offer and say, hey, would you be willing to meet up with me regularly, maybe every week or every other week, whatever fits with your schedule, and just study the Bible together and see what it has to say about Christ? And if you do that, it sounds daunting, if you do that, you'll be surprised of three things. First of all, you will be surprised at how well-equipped you are to do that. You have the Bible, you know the Bible, and if you have any questions, then we're here to answer them. You don't do this alone, you do this in the context of a church. You will also be surprised to find how much fruit that bears. 
it's amazing that God actually brings people to life through his word, like Romans chapter 10 promises. And so if you study God's word and proclaim it to other people, lives will be changed. That is a matter of fact. That is a promise that you can cling to. God's word will not return void, Isaiah 55 promises. So if you proclaim God's word to the people around you, you will see people raised to walk in newness of life, and that's great news. And you'll also be surprised how willing people are to do that. Even people that have never set foot in church, have never thought about God or, or are even angry about God, they will be willing to study God's word with you because they're interested to learn more. If Christ really is the king of all nations, he must be proclaimed in our nation. And secondly, if Christ really is the king of all nations, he must be proclaimed in all nations. Every single one of the Old Testament passages that we read today used that word peoples. And again, that's not a typo with S being added onto the end of people, Christ isn't just a kingdom over a group of individuals. Christ is king of represent representatives from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. In Revelation chapter 5, we see this astounding song of praise sung to the risen and exalted Lord Jesus, and he's labeled in Revelation chapter 5 as the Lion of Judah. And so they have, as they're singing this song, they have all of these son of David, long-awaited king expectations in mind, and here's what they say in Revelation 5 verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're just kind of piling on the words there to make it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is not the savior of one kind of people alone. Jesus Christ is the savior of all kinds of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group. Today in the world, there are a little over 3,000 people groups, distinct ethnic, linguistic, cultural groups that are classified as unreached and unengaged. These are not places where there are few Christians and few churches where there is more work to be done. These are places where there are no Christians and there are, where there are no churches, where there are no Christian resources. These places, people that live in these groups will live and die and never hear the name of Jesus in their entire life. It won't even be an option to them. They are unreached and unengaged. Collectively, they have a population of about 275 million people. Now, the math here should be pretty simple. They need the gospel. We have the gospel why wouldn't we do everything in our power to bring it to them, to meet their greatest need? Just think about it. If you had the cure for cancer, you would do everything in your power to as rapidly and radically as possible distribute it to every corner of the earth. Well, friends, we have the cure for a sickness much deeper and nefarious than cancer. We have the cure for the sin sickness that haunts our heart. And we have the good news that the Son of David came to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Why wouldn't we carry that to the nations? So in light of all that, I want to give you three exhortations. What it means for Christ to be the king of all nations in your life. First of all, commit yourself to pray. Pray for these people groups. This week, my family's been praying for the Dumbule in Cameroon. Jesus Christ has never received the praise that he is due in their language, Mbule. No one in that language has ever sang the praise of God. And so we're praying, Luke 10:2, that God would send laborers into that harvest. We know that people from the Dumbule will be gathered around the throne of God and sing his praises because Revelation 5.9 is true and in our Bibles. We know that it will happen. What are we going to do to, to make it happen? We're going to pray for it. We're going to pray for it. We need to give to it. So if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to take a look at your own budget and figure out a way to give more sacrificially to our church. When you give to our church, you're not just supporting Jared's salary or rent for the meeting space. As great and important as those things are, that's not all that our church budget does. A portion of our church budget, a portion of your gifts are given to organizations like the International Mission Board, which support this kind of work, reaching people like this around the world. And finally, I want to encourage you to go. Most of us are young 
people in this room and we are not considering being in Washington, D.C. for the rest of our lives. And so as you consider where you'll move next, instead of considering, well, where could I make the most money or where would I have the most fun or where would I like to raise a family, why not make the chief concern on your list, where can I make the most of God's kingdom? You see, many of these unreached, unengaged people groups are closed off to traditional religious workers. It is impossible to go there and boldly proclaim, hey, I'm a missionary, I'm going to come and convert everybody. Uh, But at the same time, those places are clamoring for engineers and, and communications professionals and medical professionals and, and people like us. So you have unique gifts that can give you a unique access to one of these people groups. Why wouldn't you want to go and use those gifts to access those people as a part of a missionary team to share the good news of Christ with them? Christ is king of all nations. He is the long-awaited son of David. He will end all suffering. He will rule over the earth with peace and justice and mercy. He will end all evil. He will end all suffering. He is the Christ. He is the son of God. John 3.16 says, for God so loved America that it, no, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Friends, we have that eternal life if we're in Christ. And so let's pray that God would use us to spread that life to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your kindness to us to reveal your word. And we pray, God, that you would, in your kindness, uh, raise us up to walk in life. We pray, God, that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would put aside all of their distractions and excuses and that they would put their trust for eternity only in your son and in his word and in his kingdom. I pray, God, that many in this room would be saved. I pray, God, that you would make the Christians in this room serious about spreading the good news about your son in our nation and in all nations. I pray, God, that we would commit ourselves to pray with steadfastness, to give with steadfastness, and to go with steadfastness. God, I thank you so much that you've raised up your son to be the king of all the earth. I pray that you would fill us up with longing for the day that he will rule over all nations. I pray that you would fill us up with longing for him to end all suffering and injustice. And I pray, God, that you would that you would send your son back soon. I pray that he would come and bring in this new reality. I pray that we would see him face to face and that we would be filled with joy at his coming. And it's for your name we pray. Amen.